Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me. Today's sermon by Pastor Mark Robinette is entitled, The Oxford Martyrs, and how God uses those that are broken and dysfunctional to bring forth his complete and perfect will. Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It is... The first Sunday of Reformation Month here at Foundation Church. And uh, this month on Wednesdays and Sundays, we will be remembering the stories uh, of the Protestant Reformation. Before Jesus ascended to the Father, He, the greatest man who ever lived, said those of us who followed after would do greater things than He did. How can this be? Well, we must understand that these things can only be by the Spirit of God that dwells within us. People who are saved by grace, who are sinful men. We can get this wrong. It's easy to do. We want our heroes to be without feet of clay. When we get this wrong, we can feel overly let down by others and ourselves. But remember, history... Is what? Whose story? Everybody say, His story. It's just that. It's God's story. There's none but Him who is the hero in this story. When we suffer, we do, however, somehow, as the Bible tells us, share in His glory. David was one of those men, and God allowed him to keenly feel the pains of suffering for righteousness. As God calls us to worship today, let us hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 69, where David, we can tell here, is feeling the pains of the suffering. He said, Save me, O God, for the waters are come unto my soul. I sink in the deep mire where there is no standing, and I am come in the deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying, my throat is dried, and my eyes fail me. While I wait for my God. How many have ever felt something kind of like that? They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, are mighty. And then I resorted that which I to to then I then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face, and I am become a stranger to my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting... That was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb unto them. They that sit in the gate did speak against me, and I was a song for the drunkards. But as for me, my prayers unto thee, O Lord, 
in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of these deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Sounds like he's going through some rough stuff. Draw nigh unto my soul, redeem it, deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame, my dishonor, my adversaries are all before me. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none for comfort, and I found none. David is talking about that that he knows he's suffering for God's sake, but he's suffering. It's hard for him to not even understand uh, that, that he is suffering for his own sins all at the same time. And he's asking God for deliverance, but not for his own sake, but for the sake of the Lord's who he represents. They gave me gall for meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare for them, and they which should have been for welfare, let them be a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents, for they persecute him who thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded, and iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of thy living, and not be written with the righteous. Oh, I am poor and sorrowful, but let thy salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live to seek God. For the Lord hears the poor. He despise not the prisoners. Let the heaven and the earth praise him and the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah. They that may dwell there and have it as a possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it and they that love his name shall dwell therein. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we are your people. That the good you do does not come because of the good we have done. But in spite of it, Lord, your tender mercies are new every morning upon your people. You have not dealt with us according to our sins. You have not rewarded us according to our iniquities. But dear God, you have forgiven us. You have washed us by your blood. And you do cause us to walk in your ways. And when we live righteously because of your spirit, Lord, you are glorified and not us. Today we long to hear your voice and we listen for it, hoping that your words and knowing that your words will quicken us and make us into more like you. We pray, Lord God, that you would change us as we leave this place into thankful men and women who follow you and who go out and bring glory to you as lights on a hill that cannot be hid. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Please remain standing for just a few more moments as I read my text. My text actually comes out of what Brother Andy just read for us. But I think we could hear it twice. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I will read a selection from it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-10 through 10 says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, treasure in earthen vessels. Everybody say earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Everybody say, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today, Lord, as we dive into the stories of some of your once living epistles, the stories of men, that we would indeed see the truth that is cast before our eyes, that you are great and greatly to be praised, but all of those whom you use lack, falter, fail, recant, and are weak men, but that does not make the strength of your gospel any weaker. In fact, in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. In Christ's name we pray, and everybody said amen. You may be seated. The Oxford Martyrs. Everybody say that with me. The Oxford Martyrs. Say these three names with me. Thomas Cranmer. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Maybe you know one of these names. Maybe the other two aren't that familiar, but I'm hoping you'll remember Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer after today as the Oxford Martyrs. These men were each in their own right 16th century bishops of the Church of England, and they are bound together by history as the Oxford Martyrs. It's not my moniker, it's their own. In Oxford, England in 1555, they were all convicted of heresy. They were all burned at the stake for their insistence on following their conscience and on following God's Word. The glorious tapestry of their stories gives us a keyhole look into the tumultuous time in church history where God was judging His church and correcting her course. Here in the pages of these once living epistles, we learn much of how God uses fragile jars of clay to be standard bearers of the kingdom of God. This is a very powerful and important lesson for us to learn. So try to follow me. How many people like history? I do. And the more I learn, the more I like it. 
Because I have found that truth is stranger than fiction. And not only is truth stranger than fiction, but God's truth is more powerful than the contrived stories we can make up. How many get frustrated when you see someone make an adaptation of a Bible story and they change it? And you go, the story is so much better the way it was written, the way that God brought it to us. Why in the world would they change the story? And so these stories God gives us are the stories of history. The Reformation spread across the world, but we're going to focus a little bit on the English Reformation today. God moves in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. And as we know, the church was born in a far-off corner of the Roman Empire in the Middle East. The way that it looked at the time is that a new cult had formed among uh, the conquered Jewish people living there uh, in uh, Jerusalem and in Israel around about that area. The leader of this cult had been killed by the Romans, but really only at the behest of the Jews themselves. And nearly every member of this sect was eventually tortured and killed by the Jews and the Romans. Hope for this new faith seemed to be non-existent if you were a person who were going to cast the odds on how would this movement succeed since everybody in it is killed and tortured and humiliated and, and all that. You, there, the hope that this could possibly turn into anything good uh, was pretty much non-existent in the eyes of man. Against all man-centered hope, Christianity, though, had in 1,500 years conquered not only the Roman Empire, it had become the state religion of much of the world. Its leaders had become, uh, they had come quite a long way from the vile treatment of the likes of Nero and Diocletian Roman emperors, uh, and now they presided not only over Rome, but over all the kings and the powers of the civilized world. Rome was no longer the Roman Empire. It was now called the Holy Roman Empire. Can you imagine this this story? I mean, when we tell it to unbelievers, the story of the church is so cataclysmically amazing that it is unthinkable when it comes uh, just down to the details of it all. And so Rome, who uh, took the uh, first Christians and used them as torches to light their parties and fed them to lions and treated them in the most horrible and unthinkable ways had now become the light of the world. In as much as rain, though, was a good thing, this great blessing was too much of a good thing, it seemed. The blessing of power became a flood, a storm that rained down wealth and power to the new queen of earth and tempted her. And many of her leaders were enticed to go astray from her to, uh, from her and the true king. The new king, the pope, and his court led the church into corruption and greed on the backs of the poor. And through legislated extortion, the church amassed incalculable wealth, building high-spired cathedrals and even cities as monuments to themselves, church leaders descended into the depths of depravity rivaled only by those early Roman emperors who had tormented the church in those early years. It seemed all the church had gained would be lost like the first queen of the world, Eve, had lost everything in Eden. 
But her king, though, was not Adam. He was the Lord triumphant in battle, the Lord of hosts, King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus, the Savior of the world, one who can never die. And like Him, His new creation, the church, had power like Him to raise from the dead. I believe it was one of the great writers of uh, a century or two ago, maybe it was Chesterton or Lewis, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe it was one of them, that said the reason that the church, although it always seems to die over and over, uh, that that doesn't really make much difference. We may, my my wife and I now, I'm not telling you to take our example, but we've decided that we're turning the election off. We're not going, we don't care. We don't care what happens. If you want to tell me what happens about it, I don't want to hear it. I don't care who wins and I don't care who loses. And I'm telling you what, if Hillary Clinton is in there and they appoint every judge that wants to kill every baby and, and put homosexuals in every church in the United States, I care not that the church can be kicked and can be uh, put down and can be down to where it appears to be dead. But I'm telling you that the church has the power of the resurrection. Amen? And that it cannot be destroyed. And it cannot be put down and it cannot be thwarted. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whether it be the gates of hell that are erected by the leaders of this nation or other nations of the world. In the same way that their regimes toppled to the ground. So will the next ones that come to defy our king. The king of all of heaven. Amen. Amen. Once again though. The power and humility and poverty of the poor in spirit, the meek, would conquer, would inherit the world, not through the greatness of their lives, but through the power of their righteous deaths. Not through the might of their hands, but with the blood and their humiliation would they rise again from the ashes of the depravity that had become the church. The power of the church's resurrection would be seen again throughout the world, and it would be seen in the Protestant Reformation. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer were three among a countless host of others whose names will only be known in heaven. Those who were among those who, as our text reads, bear about in their body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ that his life might be manifest in all the world. A black stone Victorian monument greets all goers to the city of Oxford today the intellectual capital of the world for many generations and stands as a reminder of the lives of these three men and their story. The story of the resurrection of the church from depravity. Today's tourists, locals, and students eat their lunches on the steps while the lofty story of its origin no doubt remains obscured to them, blinded as they are by the God of this world. Not far down the street and around the corner, a few bricks form an X or a crude cross in the street where they met their fates. Few notice this hallowed ground and fewer still appreciate its meaning. God used a unique set of circumstances and people to bring about the English Reformation. As we have named three bishops before, let us now name three monarchs tied to the life and death story that we are about to learn. Everybody say Henry VIII. Edward the Sixth and Queen Mary. All of the House of Tudor. England's King Henry VIII, who reigned nearly 60 years, was an ungodly man, to say the very least. He was married six times and was known to have numerous consorts and mistresses. 
His ungodliness went, though, to great heights. Not only did he persist in his ungodliness, he wanted the approval of the church for his ungodly deeds. I won't go into all the particulars here, but I will touch on a few things for the sake of helping us to understand and remember the story of the Oxford martyrs. First off, Henry wanted to make sure all his marriages and divorces had the stamp and the approval of the church. Can you even comprehend that, Steve? I'm going to do wrong. I'm going to get divorced. I'm going to get married. I'm going to get remarried. I'm going to do this so many times, but I'm only going to do it if it can be right with the church. Now, you know, there are people who think along these lines. They say, we know that they kill people. We know that they do horrible crimes, but what do they say? It's never been proven. I've never been convicted. And they go on doing what they do. No court in the, in the land has convicted me. I am innocent until proven guilty. And so the King Henry, he was like that. If he could get the church to approve of what he did, then what he did was okay. And who could complain? When the church did not cooperate, he used his power to separate the churches in his realm from what was then called the Holy See or the Holy Roman Catholic Church. When he did this, he formed the Church of England, also referred to as the Anglican Church. Isn't that amazing? That the Church of England, the, the, uh, the spearhead of the English Reformation in England, was basically formed because a man wanted a divorce from his wife that was ungodly and unlawful. Isn't that amazing? And you might go, well, that, you know, it's, its origins are not too good. I don't really want to talk. I'm telling you right now, the more I tell you, the more bothered you're going to be. And you might say, well, how, why are we bringing this into our church? We're bringing it into our church because men are sinners and God uses the likes of Samson who wanted nothing more than to dishonor his parents, run around with loose women, and live an ungodly life, but God still used him to bring the pillars of Dagon's temple down. Amen? He's listed as a hero of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm not extolling his virtues or saying that we should uh, copy them in any way, but what I'm saying is this is how God works. And why he does it. He explains for himself, but we like to think the words mean something else. When we like to say that God uses the weak things in the world to confound the wisdom of the wise, we like to think of us weak, paltry uh, people who, you know, can only lift a few hundred pounds. And what we're talking about here is weakness uh, beyond a level you would be willing to tolerate in your life and in your family or even have a friend like this. But God uses these men to accomplish his will is what makes the story so great. At this time, there was still a Roman Empire of sorts. And they even had an emperor. His name was Clement. It seemed to all start when Henry's first wife, everybody say Catherine of Aragon. She was unable to give him a male heir to his throne. Her only child that lived was named Mary, who would later become the notorious Bloody Mary, and I mentioned earlier, Queen Mary, who would have her own half-sister, Lady Jane Grey, beheaded and uh, nearly 280 reformers within the Church of England burned at the stake. King Henry wanted a divorce, but Rome would not allow it on the basis that she was unable to give him a male child. And what's amazing to me, Andy, this was amazing. They sent the theologians to work on this problem. 
Would he be allowed to divorce this woman because she couldn't give him a male child? And the theologians worked so hard and they studied so deep and they looked so far into God's word that they found justification for this divorce. And the bishop of the time of this brand new church of England signed the papers that said the divorce was just fine and dandy with the church and with God himself. A little less excited about the Church of England around now. A little less excited about this great bishop. Wonder who he is. We'll learn about, we'll find out who he was. His membership in the Church of England fixed a problem because when he divorced her and married his new wife, the Pope excommunicated him. And he excommunicated this bishop as well. But you see, if you're not in the church of the Roman Empire anymore and you're in a whole new church, your divorce can be nullified very easily. Just start a new church. And so that's what they did. They got a new church. So now in the Church of England, he wasn't excommunicated. The Church of England had accepted Henry VIII's membership as well as this great bishop that had been appointed. This great bishop that was appointed who approved the divorce happened to be approved by the family of Anne Boleyn. And Anne Boleyn happened to be the next new wife of Henry VIII. Isn't this all so convenient? They had uh, paid for it with the money and the influence of their family and had uh, put forward uh, the, uh, the, the papers that would have promoted this new Archbishop of Canterbury to the height of religious power within the Church of England. And no wonder uh, this, this bishop was popular with the king because this bishop not only approved of the divorce, but you know what he did next, Luke? He took a scepter and he gave it to Anne Boleyn and he said, you are now the Queen of England. And not long after that, she gave birth to a little baby. And that baby was Elizabeth, who would later become Queen Elizabeth. And this bishop, so close as he was to the king, he baptized little baby Elizabeth and had the great honor of doing so. What a great guy. Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn, was deeply influenced by the reformers, though. She was said to be a very righteous and godly woman who loved God. And you can say, now, I don't know how this can be. This is very confusing. She, she marries the king who's divorcing improperly and ungodly, but she's, she, what? She's in, in fact, in fact, later you'll learn about this. She, she considered herself a Protestant. Her first child, as I told you, was a queen, would later become Queen Elizabeth. Anne, however, was uh, not able to give Henry the son he always wanted. And some say that this short-lived relationship between Henry VIII and this new wife, this Protestant, this uh, a hero of the Reformers, that she was unable to give him the son that he wanted. And Henry began to feel that God was judging him and that some bad things were going on and that God was not pleased with what he had done with Catherine of Aragon. Some say that she miscarried right on Christmas Day of 1534. Can you imagine being in that house, being the king, being thinking that all that you wanted now is going to come to pass and the baby is, they said, was either stillborn or miscarried on Christmas Day. Two years ago, later on, uh, Catherine of Aragon, who had been locked away and not even allowed to have any communication with her little girl Mary, and little Mary's heart was being wrenched and turned and twisted into to a maniacal, vindictive, evil woman because she was separated from her mother. 
and raised around people who did not have her interests in mind. And so Catherine had been exiled, but in her exile, she had turned to God. They said she wore this shirt and they call it a hair shirt. I don't know if you've read about this much in history, but she wore this thing that was supposed to irritate you day and night. It was supposed to kind of be a constant state of penance to God. And so it irritated her. It, it made her itch and scratch all over all the time. And she wore it as she dedicated her life and became kind of like a nun the rest of her life. But they still would never let her communicate, wouldn't let her write a letter, wouldn't let her speak to her daughter Mary. So she dies. As she dies, she forgives her husband. And on that exact same day, the day that she died, Anne Boleyn was ready to give birth to a little baby boy. And the boy died on the very day. How do you think, what do you think you would be thinking about this time? I think maybe God is not pleased with me and something horrible is going on here. And Henry was like, I need to do something. But instead of thinking about doing something and repenting, he thought maybe what I need is a new wife. So he had this wife and investigated because of course everything has to be legally done and has to be approved of, right? He has her investigated for high treason and executed. The bishop who had approved the marriage of of Anne and Henry tried unsuccessfully to stop this atrocity. Of course, he owed his bishopric to Anne's family. Years after her death, Anne was listed as one of the great martyrs of the English Reformation. Because it was through her influence and her talking to Henry about the things of God that caused him to change his mind about things. One of the things that his mind was changed about and one of the things he loved about the Reformation is that the Reformation said that that, uh, the Pope was not in charge of the King. This was one of the doctrines that they loved so much. And it gave him the right to, uh, to be out from underneath that power, but Henry took it a step further. And when he formed the Church of England, he made himself the head of the church. That's why when they say today that the Church of England or the Anglican Church is headed up by the Queen of England, what they don't mean is that it's not that the Queen is the head of it, it's that whoever is the monarch is the head of it. And this was established under Henry VIII. This was a sure way of making sure you didn't get in too much trouble. If you wanted the approval of the church, just make yourself the head of the whole thing. And you can make anything come to pass. And that's what he did. In all these strange and obviously sinful practice, Henry somehow had the approval of the church. That wasn't so hard. He was the head of it. In fact, the family, as I said, of Anne Boleyn had influenced his appointment, and so he owed a great deal to them. But the thing that I want to tell you that for me, as I read the story, I thought about concealing, but then I realized it was God's plan. Do you know who this great archbishop was? Who this man that had approved the divorce, the man who was there with King Henry, the man who helped him skirt the jurisdiction of the church. It was Thomas Cranmer, the king's right hand man. Now, it's Thomas Cranmer, note the spelling, C-R-A-N-M-E-R, Cranmer, like cranberry. He served the church and the king for the reigns of King Henry VIII, his son Edward VI, and finally, briefly, under Edward's older sister, Mary, later to be known, as I told you, as Bloody Mary. You see, Cranmer was born in 1489 in Nottinghamshire, England, just three years before Christopher Columbus 
sailed his famous voyage across the Atlantic to the Americas. As I was writing this, my son uh, Gideon was sitting beside me and he's looking at the date and that's what he said. He said, Dad, that's just three years for when Columbus... I said, well, let's just put it right in the sermon, right here. (laughs) I love that I'm getting to work and to do the things of God and get to be with my children as I do them. His parents were of modest wealth and were not members of the aristocracy. Their oldest son, John, inherited the estate, whereas Thomas and his younger brother were placed on a path to be ministers. It was like a job, like getting a job as a lawyer then. Uh, getting, you know, it was just a place where you could earn money. There, were no, there was no deep religious conviction here. Thomas Cranmer's father died when he was just 12 years old. And two years later, he was sent to the newly created college called Jesus College in the city of Cambridge, England. It took him a surprising long time. It took him eight years to earn his bachelor's degree. Uh, but during that time, he started an incredible collection of medieval scholastic books, which he kept throughout his whole life. For his master's degree, he studied proto-reformer Jacques Lefebvre. And uh, as I talked to church about him before, it seems every time his name comes up, he becomes one of the teachers uh, from France that influenced many men across the world, in Switzerland, in Germany, in England, and all around the world. The teachings that he offered, his name was Jacques Lefebvre of Ditaples. I can't pronounce his name probably, but that's close. Uh, in three years, he finished his master's degree and was elected at the fellowship uh, at Jesus College. Sometimes after Cranmer took his master's, he married a woman named Joan. And at that time, you weren't allowed to be married. And so uh, he, uh, he wasn't a priest, but he wasn't allowed to keep his fellowship, so he lost it. But soon after, she became pregnant, and she herself died in childbirth, and the college restored his fellowship. He began studying theology, and by 1520, he had been ordained. The university already having named him as one of their preachers, he received his doctor of divinity in 1526. Cardinal Wolsey, the king's chancellor, Henry VIII's chancellor, selected several Cambridge scholars to be diplomats throughout Europe, and Cranmer was chosen to take a minor role in the English embassy in Spain. A year later, his work, he would meet and become lifelong friends with Henry VIII, and would be appointed Archbishop of Canterbury at the behest of the family of Anne Boleyn, who King Henry had turned to as he divorced his first wife after not giving him a male heir. As I began to read the history of all this, my mind was just kind of like, I was let down. I, I was troubled by this. This bothered me. And, and, but I thought, no, it's the truth, and I need to keep reading Sadly, it was Kramer, as I told you, who built the case for this ungodly annulment. But this act was officially the act that caused the separation of the English church with the Holy See. And so in history, uh, this part of the Reformation is solely given credit to uh, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and Thomas Kramer for their part that they played in this. Kramer signed the papers. As I said of the divorce, he crowned Anne Boleyn, handed the scepter, baptized Elizabeth, and he now became so deeply tied to this Tudor dynasty that he was inseparable. During Cranmer's tenure as archbishop, he was responsible for establishing the first doctrinal liturgical structures of the Reformed Church of England. Writing the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles, the church's statement of faith to this very day, And we would disagree with hardly any of it. It's absolutely beautiful. Many of the words we say in our service come from this man's pen. 
But wasn't he a scallywag? Wasn't he a, didn't, didn't, I mean, I wouldn't be friends with this guy. There's no way. It seems though God used Cranmer to do much good. He was embroiled though in politics and in godly justification of the sins of his monarch. He was pragmatic. The means to accomplish what he wanted were considered necessary or perhaps his heart had not been changed. I don't really know why he did all the things that he did and it's very confusing for me. I I, I like my heroes to be black and white. But were we not greeted by God with King David, the man after his own heart? And he's the hero of all of Israel. Jerusalem's called the city of what? David and his Cranmer any more uh, guilty than him? Once again, I'm not saying any of these things are fine. I haven't become a liberal that's fine with this ungodliness and sin. But it's right here, just as it is in the pages of Scripture. Yet still, God used these men. Cranmer used of God was knee-deep in guilt of so many public sins of his time and no doubt many other private ones as well. He was certainly not the heroic reformer I had imagined him to be. The more I learned about him, the more I didn't want to say. It's not being honest. Truth is most of the great men I read about are not really as great as I want them to be. They're not as spotless as I hope they will be. Their stories were not as black and white and easy to tell as I'd like, but there's always more than we know to any story. The scripture says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Our heroes are no different. Whether on the battlefields of human conflict or in matters of the church, they are the same. They are all sinners saved by God's grace. We like the last part of the statement, but not the first. In the middle of the night, the other night, I was on my way to bed and Nathaniel was walking around and I could hear him and I called out to him and he came. I'm like, what are you doing? He said, I'm listening to a lecture about what made Tolkien a great writer and his character so great. I'm like, oh, that's that's really great. And he started to tell me something that was so entwined with where my mind was already going that I, I was very interested by it. He said, Dad, he said, do you realize that when he writes about his heroes in the story, that his that his heroes are not that heroic? I'm like, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, he said, remember Frodo, he's not strong and he's not wise and he's not brave. And, and here he goes into the story and in it, he doesn't always do what's right. And even at the very end, he fails to do the very last thing he's supposed to do and has to be carried in to do what he needs to do. And then when he returns to the Shire, he's sick and afflicted by his experience for the rest of his life. I'm like, wow. He goes, you see, Tolkien was acquainted with World War I. See, the people that went there thought that, that battle was heroic and they thought fight, and they thought they would go there when they would be heroes and they came back and they were a lot quieter about it because they realized that they really weren't that heroic. That the medals they wore, they really shouldn't have gotten and they feel pretty bad about it and they're deeply affected for the rest of their lives. I am telling you, the Bible teaches us that this is what men are made of. They are not made of the incorruptible. At their, at their core, they are sinners who need to be redeemed by the glorious gospel of Christ. And that the only heroic deeds they do are from the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit within them. And we feel so let down. Henry VIII, as I read the story from Cranmer's perspective, was more like a tortured believer's story than like the brutish he that I had expected. Over and again, he was judged for his sins. He was tormented by them. 
death and judgment was wrought in his life, bore out what might even be seen as God judging his own. When I was young, I was, it was so much more simple in my mind. God, good people did good and bad people did bad. When people did bad, I moved them over to the bad column. That's what I did. And as long as they did good, they stayed in the good column. But God's word calls me to a different standard than that. Reading the account of the death of Henry VIII, it seems as though something dynamic happened in Cranmer. Passionately, the historian tells us he cried out a a confession of faith that Henry can only be saved by the grace of God alone through faith and that his sins needed to be covered by the blood and that his power and his influence would not save him. And he called out to God passionately over Henry while holding his hand. His friend of many years. His partner in crime. Henry, as he died on his bed, didn't have the last rites of a Roman Catholic priest, but he had the passionate cry of a friend flawed as he was. When Edward came to the throne, Cranmer was able to promote major reforms. Something seemed to happen in his heart. He compiled the two editions of the Book of Common Prayer in English, which became the the English liturgy of the church. With the assistance of many continental reformers, he gave refuge to, he changed doctrine in the areas of of the Eucharist, clerical celibacy, the role of images and places of worship, and the veneration of saints. Cranmer promulgated the new doctrines of the prayer book with homilies and other publications. It was at this time he used his influence to begin filling the highest and best positions of the church with reformers. He thought this was the way. He was pragmatic. And so what he did is he searched out through Europe and found, where are these great reformers? He was friends with the likes of Philip Melanchthon and with Martin Bucer. He, 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 he corresponded for 18 years with Martin Bucer. Can you believe this? He tried to get them to come. He wanted them to fill the pulpits. He started taking away the altars out of the Catholic church and putting tables in for communion. He thought, if I fill the church with leaders and if I change it and I make it good, it's going to work. But you know what happened to these people? Oh, it worked, but it didn't work the way that he wanted. God had another plan. After the ascension of the Roman Catholic Mary, uh, King Edward VI, which was the son of Henry, it was Henry's younger son. He, he only had one son, but he was much younger than Mary. He died of tuberculosis, and on his deathbed, he, uh, he said, well, Mary can't be queen. And, uh, and, and we'll make, we'll make uh, Lady Jane Grey, we'll make her queen, which was, the, which was a half-sister of Mary. And Mary got support of the people and overthrew it and had Lady Jane killed. And then all these people that he brought in to all these high positions within the church, you know what Mary did to them? She brought them all and put them all in jail. And one after the other, after the other, after the other, they became the seed of the Reformation as they burned and as they were tortured and as they were mistreated. You see, Cranmer thought, I'll put them all in these high places and we'll we'll secure a political structure that's going to stand. And God said, these are going to make great burning. Cranmer was one of those who was arrested. He was put on trial for heresy. And in prison for two years under pressure from church authorities, 
He made several recantations. Apparently, he reconciled himself with the Roman Catholic Church. He said, you know, uh, I changed my mind. I, I really think that, 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 that transubstantiation is really right. And, and I really think that having images is, is a good thing. And he started talking about it. And they're like, you know, what would it be better is if you wrote about it. And so he did. So here we have this man whose heart and mind have been changed, but his flesh was so weak and, and he just couldn't really withstand the torture. His life had been a life of ease and he, he had had the best and he had been accompanied by the king and he had been a part of court. And when it came time to suffer, he could not bear it. But God was faithful that even in his cowardice, even in his running away, that God would immortalize Thomas Cranmer in Fox's Book of Martyrs for what happened in the last little bit of his death. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, among these other reformers were two other men. Everybody say Hugh Latimer. Nicholas Ridley. These men worked with Cranmer, and they were two of the men that he had appointed to bishoprics. One was the uh, a bishop of London and Westminster, the other of Worcester. Nicholas Ridley was an English bishop. Of, he was the one who was the bishop of London, the only one ever to be called the bishop of London and Westminster. He came from a prominent family. He was the second son of Christopher Ridley. Uh, as a boy, he was educated at the Royal Grammar School, and uh, he ended up going to Cambridge as well. All of these men were educated in Cambridge, where he proceeded uh, to get his Master of Arts in 1525. Soon afterward, he was ordained a priest and he went to the Sorbonne in Paris. You see, I don't understand exactly, but the more I study about this, the Reformation always leads back to Paris. It always leads back to France and something that had gone on there. I want to know more about it. But around that time, there was a significant debate about the Pope's supremacy and Ridley was well-versed in biblical hermeneutics. And though his arguments... Uh, through his arguments at the university where he attended in Cambridge, he was able to come up with this statement. And this statement uh, was a very powerful influence in changing the way that people think. It was, the Bishop of Rome has no more authority and jurisdiction derived from him, from God, in the Kingdom of England than any other bishop. This was huge because the Pope was regarded to be basically the leader of the whole church of all the world. He graduated in 1537, was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramer, to serve as one of the chaplains of the king in Kent. In 1540, he was made one of the king's chaplains and was awarded a degree of Doctor of Divinity later. But then he was accused of heresy. But he beat the charge this time. Cranmer explained to him how he could beat it and and legally they parsed uh words and they wrote papers and they defended themselves and they got out of it cranmer had resolved to support the english reformation by gladly gradually replacing the old guard of ecclesiastical province with men who followed the new thinking ridley was made the bishop of rochester in 1547 Shortly after coming to office, he directed that the altars of the churches be removed and that tables be put in their place for the Lord's Supper. In 1548, he helped Kramer as he worked uh, compiling the Book of Common Prayer and he helped remove the incumbent conservative priests so that they could be replaced with reformers. The death of King Edward brought about Ridley's downfall. On February uh, the 2nd of 1553, he was ordered 
Thomas Cranmer ordered John Knox to become the vicar of Al Hollow's church in London, placing him under the authority of Ridley. Knox returned to London in order to deliver a sermon before the king. As these messages were coming before the king, it was deeply affecting the leaders of the time. Edward VI became ill, though, from tuberculosis. And in mid-June, the counselors were told that he did not have long to live. And this is what they said about trying to make sure, let's get the next queen. Let's make her a Protestant from Lady Jane Grey. We don't want it to be Mary. She's raised a Catholic, and she's been in exile, and she's angry, and she'll do horrible things. And they were right. And so Ridley worked uh, uh, very hard. Uh, toward the end of following in the in the in the in the mode of Cranmer by being political in his appointments. In 1553, he preached a sermon on Saint Paul at, at Saint Paul's cross, in which he affirmed that Princess Mary and Elizabeth were not legitimate heirs to the throne. You see, here even in this reformer, he's he's becoming political. He's trying to figure out a way through letters and and, and courts and. And legalese to to do the will of God. God does not need our help. Can we say that? God does not need our help. And just because a king might come, just because we might get Donald Trump, or because we get Hillary Clinton, or because we get, you know, whoever, they're not going to change what goes on in the world that God is making. Yes, they can appoint and they can make things appear to, so for a time. It doesn't really matter what they do, though. I'm telling you that when we get to where we start saying, well, let's do this. This is the most politically expedient way. This is how we can make it come to pass. What we do is we enter into the mire with the blind of this world and we are wrong. And these guys now in history, I'm sure, in heaven, they're looking down and going, we were idiots. We thought if we could get this to happen. We thought if we could make the right person the king. We thought if we could do this, we could, we could change the world. And God said, oh, just kind of like, you remember those guys that came and said, can I sit on your right hand and can I sit on your left? Just like that. He said, you know, you really don't even know what you're asking. And he goes, oh, you will. You, you will. But it's not going to be the way you want. You're, gonna, you're going to die like I died. And that's what was going on here. They wanted to make it right and their desire to. God would allow them to be a part of it, but it wouldn't be the way that they wanted. It wouldn't be how they wanted. Ridley was eventually sent to the Tower of London. Throughout February, the political leaders that supported Jane were executed. In the Tower of London, he was there with Thomas Cranmer, who had been arrested. And there they were consoling themselves. I guess we, I guess we messed up here. We, we really tried to make it work, but it didn't work. Throughout February... The political leaders and the supporters of Jane were all executed, including Jane herself. After that, there was a time to deal with the reformers. On March the 8th, 1554, the Privy Council ordered Cranmer, Ridley, and Latimer uh, all to be transferred to a prison in Oxford to await trial for heresy. The trials of Latimer and Ridley started shortly after Cranmer's. The verdicts came almost immediately and they were burned at the stake. Cranmer began to recant to save his life. Now, Hugh Latimer who's now an old man. He is also one of these, and he's in the prison, and his execution is coming. He had an early start. He started learning Latin at four years old. Any, now, we're all good homeschool parents. Anybody's kids at four learning Latin yet? Man, we're so far behind. If Maybe if we start at three, then we'll really change the world. At four years old, he was born to a family of farmers but started studying Latin. Uh, not, much, not much is known about him, but he also went to Cambridge. He was elected fellow of Clare College. He received his master's. He was ordained a priest. 
He, he, this happened years before he, by the time he's in prison, he's an old man. He was nominated to the positions of university preacher. That church, honey, that we went to, he preached there week after week. And they said, well, I'll read it. I keep wanting to say stuff, but then I'm reading the stuff I've written here. So let me just, let me kind of read through it here. The subject of his disputations were on the ideas of the Reformation. The doctrines of Philip Melanchthon filled his heart. Up to this time, Latimer described himself as an obstinate papist. As, as in, he is obstinate to the Pope as any in England. And uh, he was a recent convert to the new teachings. Latter joined a group of reformers that met at the White Horse Tavern. We got to see that. We went a little boat. We went by the White Horse Tavern. They would get together and they would plot and they would talk. How can we do it? How can we change this world? How can we make this reformation happen? All along God said, I know how we'll do it. (laughs) I got a plan. There's a light that needs to be lit. And you know what you're going to be good for? You're going to be good for setting that fire. And they're like, oh, we're going to preach it into existence. We're We're going to politically move it into existence. We're going to, with our efforts, make it to happen. But... God said, oh, yes, you will. You'll, we're going to let you do that. One historian said this, It was the preaching of Latimer more than the edicts of Henry that established the principles of the Reformation in the minds and the hearts of the people. From his preaching, the movement received its chief color and complexion. They said what Latimer preached and that he, his simpleness, the fact that he, he, he was not interested in scholastic debate. He, he was powerfully persuaded by the plain arguments of Scripture. The sermons of Latimer possess a combination of qualities which constitute them unique examples of the, of the species of literature. It is impossible to learn from them more regarding the social and political condition of the period than perhaps from any other source. For they abound not only in the exposures of religious abuses and of the prevailing corruptions of society, but it references to many varieties of injustices and unwise customs in racy sketches of character and vivid pictures, special features of the time occasionally illustrated by interesting incidents of his life. He preached these messages that had people spellbound. His bold, open denunciation of the oppression practiced by the powerful, his scathing diatribes against the ecclesiastical hypocrisy, the transparent honesty of his fervent zeal, tempered by sagacious moderation, qualities not, you know, and it goes on, the, you know. So, so, so now you have, you have Cranmer, the political guy. You have uh, Ridley, the, the guy who was kind of following in Cranmer's footsteps had become a little bit political, but these guys' hearts along the way were changed. And as they're sitting in their prisons, they're realizing that God had another plan for their life. On April 1550, more commissions from the papal party began the examination of Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer. Latimer, hardly able to sustain a debate because he was so old, responded to the council in writing. He argued that the doctrines of the real, the doctrines of the real presence of Christ in the Mass, transubstantiation, and the merit of the Mass were unbiblical. The commissioners tried to demonstrate that Latimer did not share the same faith of the fathers, but he knew too much about the fathers of his faith, and he started to tell them what they believed, and of course they wanted to shut him up. He said, I am of their faith, and further, Augustine requires none of these things that you require to be believed. Latimer believed that the welfare of souls demanded the stand for the Protestant understanding of the gospel. He understood that the debate involved the very message of salvation itself. And after they sentenced him to death, you know what he said? 
He said, I thank God most heartily that he hath prolonged my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by this kind of death. Could you imagine saying that as you knew they were lighting a fire outside for you? The guy who was taking him, you know what he said? Instead of something glorious, what he said? He said, if you end up going to heaven, I don't want to go there. That's how nasty he was. Encyclopedia Britannica, an old, very old version, it's not in the newer version, says, Never was a man more free than Latimer from the taint of fanaticism or less dominated by vainglory. But the motives which now inspired his courage not only placed him beyond the influence of fear, but it enabled him to taste in dying the ineffable thrill of victorious achievement. In Britannica, honey, can you believe it? Ridley had greeted Latimer with these words, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. This is what, this is what uh, Latimer, the old man, says. He sees him. He knows. He says, we're getting ready to die. He said, but don't be afraid, Master Ridley. He said, play the man. He said, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, I trust, that shall never be put out. He, as it says here, received the flames as it were embracing it. After he had stroked his face with his hands, as it were, bathed them in the fire, he died and appeared to have no or very little pain at all in his death. He was satisfied that he had done his best for his Lord. Cranmer watched the whole proceedings, but still recanted and later wrote his recantations down as... Ridley was dying horrible things. They put gunpowder underneath his, his armpits to try to make him burn up faster, but they, they didn't ignite, and, and the fire went on, and these men died uh, very long, painful deaths. The Cramer, who watched the proceedings, recanted. He saw the whole thing, and he said, no, 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 I don't believe any of this stuff. He wrote about it, but he was then given... Uh, the word that even though he wrote about it, even though he recanted it, even though the law says if he did, he could get out of it, he was going to die. So he wrote it, he submitted a speech in advance, and they published the speech after his death, but he didn't actually give it. He started to give the speech. He started to say what he believed, and he, he started to really speak lies about what he believed, even in his very own last words in this pre-written speech. But then unexpectedly deviating from his prepared script, he renounced the recantations that he had written and signed in his own hand. And he said that his, the hand that had signed these things and had written these things would be burnt first. He said, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy. He is Antichrist and all of his false doctrine. He was pulled from the pulpit, taken to where Latimer and Ridley had been burnt six months before in the very same spot. As the flames drew around him, he fulfilled his promise by placing his right hand into the heart of the fire. And he began to say, this unworthy hand. In his dying words, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he said, as he died, and I can't imagine that he would lie about it. At this moment, it would not be the time to lie, would it not? Would it not? He said, I see the heavens open. And I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Their stories are immortalized in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I've even talked about it many times myself, but hearing the story this way to me makes the story even better. 
There is hope for people like you and me that Christ will be heroic and victorious and righteous through us. There is no hope that our righteousness will be great and glorious and and should be admired and somehow uh, be accepted as, uh, as heroic to all the world. Let me just read our text one more time. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Paul was explaining this. If you can't see the message at this point, I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been treated like garbage, I've paid my way through ministry, I've been despised by the very church that I raised up. And he's saying, if you, if you can't see the gospel by now, if you can't see the humility and the understanding that God's uh, greatness is not to be seen through the strength of men, but through the power of God, if you can't see it now, it's only because you're blinded by in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves. Paul realized through the destruction of his body, as these three men did, that what we preach Christ ourselves, but, but not us. We ourselves are your servants for Christ's sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, he shined in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have these treasure in earthen vessels. He realized that it was merely a jar of clay or a breakable, fragile thing that wasn't that important. It wasn't that special. It wasn't that enduring. He said, why is it? He said that that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. I always thought this was saying, I'm still hanging on. And what he's saying is, look at me. The reason I have hope isn't that I'm I'm determined. It isn't that I'm going to stand no matter what. He's saying, look at it. He said, we're cast down, but not destroyed. He goes, that's what's the amazing thing. He goes, we're persecuted. He goes, but God hasn't forsaken us. He's brought us right here that are dying. And in our dying, that the life of Jesus would be made manifest in us. And that was the message of the Oxford martyrs. They thought they could do it so many different ways. And now as Paul, they were saying, hey, if the gospel that really we were wanting to preach, if it's hid, it's only hid to them that are lost. Those that, those that are saved can see that this gospel was never about us. It was never about what we did. It was never about how long we could last, how distressed we could be, but not perplexed. He's saying we totally understand it now. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that our life also might be made manifest in our body. How many of us really want to be used of God like that? In my life, I've wanted to be used of God to do great things. You want to do great things like that? Or you want to do the great things like we imagine? The Bible says that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, right? Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. And I'm telling you, you can say that in in, in in a lofty way, or you can say, you have no idea. I have no idea how God will use me, and He will use you. Will Will I be the one, you know who's, you know, burning, brings glory to God, and that's the light that my life shines. That's the message of the Reformation. Not that it was filled with these great, incredible people for us to revere, 
But as we look into their lives, we'll see that they were people like us. In fact, they were worse than us. Maybe some of them were better than some of us. I don't know. But I read about them and I go, I, I literally think, well, I, I, I'd never do that. I'm better than that. But I think we need to think again. And we need to say, all they are is what we are. And only in Christ is there salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this can be seen as a downer. Here we wanted to celebrate and get excited about our heroic fathers of the faith. But Lord, what they would want us to get excited about was that in their weakness, your strength was made perfect. Lord, just like Samson, even at his very last moment, blinded, filled with revenge and hate and anger, not accepting the fact that he was in the place he was in because of his own sinfulness and his own foolishness. But even in the midst of all that, you were faithful to make him a great judge of Israel. That you, as you had promised, would vanquish the Philistines, the the enemies of the people of God, and you would do it through him. Lord, may we understand that this may indeed be our lot. May we hope that it is. May we see ourselves not as paragons of great virtue, but as in the weak vessels that we are, pressing for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God, despising our sinfulness and not the sinfulness of others as much. Lord, make us, make us to see the light of this gospel. May it make us more confident, Lord, because if it rests upon us in our goodness, our greatness, our ingeniousness, our cleverness, our smartness, if it, if it rests on those things, Lord God, it has not a chance in the world. But Lord, we see that your church will prevail and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you. Amen.